Tonight's reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. The word of the Lord. It's rare, pretty rare, I think, for most of us. Maybe a little bit less so for like Zen masters or shamans or people who regularly do psychedelics or people who pray without ceasing. But there are moments in life, I hope you've had some, where you see something, sees really an inadequate word for what I'm trying to get at, in a way that you've never seen it before. Your habitual perspective is blown away, maybe for a moment, maybe it lingers, or maybe it changes your life suddenly or very gradually as you keep telling yourself to remember that your judgments and your habits of seeing are somewhat narrow, really. And that opening to a much more imaginative and graceful vision than you have in your run-of-the-mill moments is crucial. The most hopeful possibility. Your neat categories for sorting people dissolve. What's good is bad. What's bad is good. You find out when you reach the top, you're on the bottom, the first or last. I don't know, something like that. You glimpse that everything you judge, bankers, death, politicians, your enemies, everything is inside love. And you're emboldened to live like this is true. I mean, it's one thing to believe theoretically in the mercy. It's another thing to be overcome by it. 
we can orchestrate these moments, make them happen. I don't know if it's in our control, but I think when they come, it's like something much larger than yourself and your limited consciousness and your history and your psychology and your little life has blown your mind. Jesus was all about blowing people's minds. He embodies such a shocking reversal in his very being. God become a human being, a sharding baby, acneed adolescent, balding man. I mean, I've never seen a picture of Jesus without hair, but he was 33. It happens, right? Nostrils and every other human orifice. The holy manifested in the profane body and blood, arteries and ligaments. Jesus reveals that God gives up power, transcendence, serenity, purity for relationship, for love. And says, follow me, you do it too. God, not at all almighty. I mean, it is really pretty crazy. And however many Christians are in the world, it doesn't really seem like anyone believes this revelation much, or much of the time. But okay, so Jesus embodies this sort of mind-blowing reversal. And he also goes around pelting people with these little stories meant to startle and confound, alter the heart and the mind. Parables, we usually call them. And I don't know, maybe after 2,000 years, it's impossible that these paradoxical little narrative devices could still have much of an effect. But we're also really complicit in taming them, making them more palatable to our sensibilities, making them less weird and disturbing and destructive. The Archbook children's version of the parable of the Good Samaritan was actually probably not going to blow anyone's mind. It tells a pretty good rendition of the biblical story. A man is beaten up by robbers. He's left helpless. A priest sees him and passes by. Next, a scribe does the same. Next, a Samaritan sees him and helps him. And the book does point out a bit of the scandal. The Samaritan is someone who was hated and reviled and despised by the Jewish people. But the lesson, be a good Samaritan, sort of rids the thing of any paradox. Dear parent, can you help your child carry out the sometimes difficult task of being a true neighbor, even to those who may not seem our brothers? I mean, Nothing in that message really messes with the lines. The good are good. If you're reading the book, you're probably one of us, the pretty good people who should take care of those in need, even those who don't seem like our brothers. Them. Them sketchy folks. This sort of evisceration 
of a story meant to confound, explode, bedazzle, and discompose is not at all limited to the way we tell the story to children. It's really sort of standard operating procedure. The term Good Samaritan is used pretty much universally as a synonym for charity, not something very disruptive to the system that governs the world. There are Good Samaritan foundations, ministries, forensic nurses, international relief agencies, grant programs, a Good Samaritan charity golf tournament in South Dakota and Georgia. Its mission is to foster and promote the truest spirit of golf. Good Samaritans, according to the news headlines I found on the internet, rescue baby squirrels from bag of mulch, swerve through traffic to rescue feline, make pets available for adoption. Great, but not like revolution. George W. Bush invoked the parable in his first inaugural address, I learned from a book I'm reading by Amy Jo Levine. Bush said, I can pledge our nation to a goal. When we see that wounded traveler on the road to Jericho, we will not pass to the other side. That may have meant send troops to Iraq, I don't know. Queen Elizabeth used the parable in the Christmas address. Tony Blair in his speech on behalf of the Faith Foundation. It's a staple of mainstream political discourse. Meaning usually something to the effect of, we must look after our neighbor in the words of the queen, regardless of their race, creed, or color. We must take care of nations or people in distress. There's an organization called the GSDS in Australia the Good Samaritan Donkey Society. Good people, I presume, taking care of donkeys. But listen to Martin Luther's read. He says, the Samaritan is Jesus, not George Bush, the United States of America, your church child or charity. Jesus who became the servant on behalf of you, the half-dead person in the ditch. The bandits are the powers and principalities, he says, who have robbed and wounded us, nearly killed us. We may struggle a little bit to remain alive, take a Sabbath from the internet, use DuckDuckGo instead of Google, shop at the co-op. But there lies horse and man, he says. We cannot help ourselves to our feet and if we were left thus lying, we would have to die in misery. Maggots would grow in our wounds. Luther likes to be graphic. If the wounded man had tried to help himself, he'd only have done harm, irritating his wounds as he scraped his body across the rocky road. Left to ourselves, we are lost. We cannot help ourselves. That's how Luther reads. Definitely more disturbing, kind of offensive really, certainly to the American spirit. In that same inaugural speech I mentioned before, Bush said, we must build our defenses beyond challenge, lest weakness 
invite challenge. We can't identify with the weak, helpless man in the dish, ditch. We're the powerful, we're the good, and we're the helpful. But are we really? Or is that sort of a lie that perpetuates itself to keep things in order? George Bush is going to grow sick and die. Even the rich are going to die, have profound weakness. It could be that the American spirit is quite a bit different than the spirit of God. It could be that there's something about seeing ourselves as the good ones, the strong ones, that is sort of counter to the spirit of the gospel keeps us from hearing something that we need to hear if the world is ever going to be turned upside down. But I'm not sure anyone who enjoys the privileges of the world as it is really wants the world to be turned upside down. The Good Samaritan Foundations, hospitals, golf tournaments, etc. are joined by people who want to be do-gooders. And who isn't all for people doing good? But I do think that there's sort of an explosive conundrum about these stories that Jesus pelts his hearers with that is lost. The parables are more disturbing than that. Most biblical scholars and theologians recognize, like Luther, that the original hearers of the story wouldn't have seen themselves in the role of the Good Samaritan. Though somehow this completely escapes the popular imagination. The neighbor that Jesus is calling the hearer to love in this parable is his enemy. The person that you hate, judge, loathe, staring you in your face, in your place of vulnerability. And against everything you expect, everything you've come to believe about how the world operates, who's good and bad, this loathsome person tends to your wounds. You need them. That's uncomfortable. And I think it does sort of shake things up when the bad guy becomes good. The way Luke tells the story, it's an answer to a lawyer who asked Jesus what he can do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, in his way, answers his question with the question, well, how do you read? And the lawyer answers without hesitation. Love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, yes, absolutely. Go do that and live. But instead of going to do that and live, the lawyer asks, well, who's my neighbor? That's kind of an inappropriate question, really, in the face of love. It's limiting in and of itself that you should even ask. It's like asking well, who can I not love? Who can I loathe, judge, and think poorly of? I know I have a list I might present. Gun-toting sadists, Wall Street bankers, climate change deniers, racists, rapists, misogynists, I could go on and on. But so Jesus spins this tale to spin the lawyer's world around. 
The one the lawyer would almost certainly judge, find appalling, turns out to be the compassionate one. The whole thrust of the story demands that this guy says what he cannot say. What is a contradiction in terms for him? Good plus Samaritan. The story demands that the hearer respond by saying the impossible, the unspeakable. The point of the story isn't that you should help the neighbor in need, though of course you should. If that was the point, naming the helper a Samaritan would have been a huge distraction. It would have been better to make the wounded man a Samaritan and the helper someone that the hearers could relate to. But when good becomes bad and bad becomes good, there's a world that is being challenged. And you're faced with this polar reversal. I mean, I don't know. Maybe we don't really want that story in our children's curriculum. I know that as a parent, I'd like to try to impart on my children the values that I believe in. And you know what? Nothing makes me happier when they demonstrate that they've absorbed the values that I think are crucial. Miles gets arrested at the White House protesting big oil. Olivia is a fiery advocate for gender equality. They seem righteous to me. Not, of course, always. But I think they're pretty good people. And I like to enforce that, reinforce that. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's okay for a parent. But maybe the Church of Jesus Christ, the great reverser, should do something different. I mean, I don't know. I'm wondering. Maybe the gospel is more like always moving than ever fixed. It reveals, it converts, it confronts, it changes, disrupts, disturbs, explodes. More than it lays a firm foundation. It gives us a glimpse of a living God who is always crossing the lines that we really believe in. To create relationship, love, loving those who hate you and those you hate. It's outrageous when you have to think through the details. So Luther takes his metaphor further, as he's wont to do. The beast, he says, that the Samaritan lifts the man onto, the beast is Christ. I don't know what that means for the Good Samaritan Donkey Society. (laughs) The donkey, Christ, carries us. We lay upon his shoulders, neck, and body. Luther says, remember, the church is nothing but a hospital and an infirmary where we have many and various kinds of sick people. He seems to want to press upon us the understanding that we are sick people. Maybe that's not really a revelation we're eager for the kids to see. I want them to see themselves as strong and capable. I don't think that's how we want to see ourselves. 
But is there something about seeing our sickness, not our neighbors or parents or Africa's, but our deep wounds, confessing them, that might change the world? I mean, I don't know, but it does seem like Jesus is pretty intent on showing people that they need mercy. Maybe we aren't as much do-gooders as we like to think of ourselves. The lawyer who asked the question of Jesus doesn't seem to know up front that he needs mercy, that he lives by mercy. Maybe he doesn't even know what it is because he's never reckoned with his own sickness. We resist seeing ourselves as needy. But is there something about glimpsing that, confessing that, as a people, as a nation, leaders, queens, presidents, prime ministers, etc., etc., that would disrupt the violent and destructive system that governs the world where the first are always first and the last are always last? Okay, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring in an example that I thought of while I was watching TV. But so I've been watching Narcos, maybe you have too. About this incredibly violent and rich drug lord, Pablo Escobar. It's true, sort of. Who, like many of us, saw himself at times as a good Samaritan. He helped the poor and the weak. He built houses and schools and he distributed food and money to the weak. But what made him wage war, torture, kill, bomb, destroy, was his refusal to appear weak. He says to his son in one episode, you have to stay strong. I want you to stay strong. Promise me that you won't ever be weak. I don't know, maybe that whole mentality, shared, of course, by non-drug dealers, every American president, Vladimir Putin, most people I know, isn't really helping us. And maybe seeing that we need mercy would. Maybe we don't want to disturb the kids with that sort of revelation. But what if they learned that that was what the gospel was like? Upending, disruptive, disturbing. Maybe making the parables into neat little example stories of morality instead of confounding little explosions of light isn't really that helpful. Makes them into something that supports and upholds our usual way of seeing, the order that we cling to, instead of exposing that order as somehow false or not quite as true as we believe. It's upsetting when the way you've come to understand things breaks open. It's uncomfortable. But I think the Spirit of God is like this. Destructive. Not to make us scared and miserable, but help us to glance this enormous and stunning love which we are not capable of in and of ourselves. Love isn't something you can do by yourself. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad if we allowed the children to experience Jesus as the disruptor. The Spirit of God as something that knocks things askew. Instead of making sure somehow the Bible stories uphold 
the order we cling to. Let go of even your very well-conceived judgments. Follow the drastic, outrageous mercy. See where the mercy leads. <laughs>